you another example. So I did the rehabilitation for Kevin Durant for his ruptured Achilles, right? So you've got a guy who's top of the game, plays basketball at the top level, ruptured his Achilles. He's 30 plus years old. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Cheeky Midweeky, where we are making strength and conditioning not boring anymore. And today we have Dr. Dave Hancock, who is a physio and we were talking off air. I am blown away that we have this guest, um, Dr. Dave, uh, Dr. Hancock. I am very appreciative of you coming on the show. Please introduce yourself to our members and our listeners out there. And I look forward to getting to learn from you, man. Justin, pleasure. Um, please just call me Dave. <laughs> we do. don't need we'll to do. be, we don't need to be formal here. We'll um, nice to be on the show and uh, nice to chew the fat. Yeah, let's do it. I mean, we talked on the phone beforehand, and I think this is going to be something that we're going to be able to help strength coaches out with right away. The gap between athletic training, strength and conditioning, fit like it exists. How do we fix it? So I think the first thing is communication. I think it's really important. Um, so my background is I'm a DPT, uh, CSCS strength coach, being a performance director. Um, I was the performance director at the Knicks for seven years. I was on the Nike performance board. I worked in the Premier League for 18 years. I uh, worked for Chelsea, um, Leeds, Wolves. And then I also worked for the England national team. So for the past 30 years, I've sort of been around this whole performance, sports medicine, injury prevention um, cycle. And I feel the first thing I, I see is communication between departments has to be there. The way that I look at this, right, is that if I'm a strength coach working for an organization, whether it's a professional collegiate high school, I'm there to improve the performance of my or our athletes. And that's the goal to uh, improve their power, improve their strength, improve their speed, improve their ability to perform their sport at the highest level and go on and beyond. But another component of that is that I'm also responsible to make sure that they're available to do that because it, no matter what you do in a weight room or what you do on a field, if the individual isn't available to play, it's, it's worthless. So I feel it, what's really important here is that communication between the athletic training staff and the strength coaches. And I also think what's really important here is looking at your availability stats, right? Look at your trends of what your data tells you. So there's a big occurrence that's happening, for instance, in the NFL now. If you look at the NFL data, hamstring injuries are becoming like an absolute cancer. And the question is, is all right, so let's say I'm working in the NFL. What am I doing as a strength coach to prevent hamstrings? And it's not just a question of, well, we do loads of Nordics. It's a question of, it's a question of what each of those individuals need and what you look at within that individual to actually prevent in your department as well as the athletic training department. And I think that's where those two silos, if you like, need to come together. <clears throat> How do we do that? Because there, there are silos, but then there is, is it just getting rid of ego? Because <clears throat> my drug of choice when I was at Towson was my head athletic trainer, Kyle Cherry. He and I were yin and yang. We worked together amazingly. And 
I've loved being able to work with him. It's not like that everywhere. And I'm guessing it's mm. simply ego. Well, I mean, at the end of the day, right, you're there to do a job for the athlete. Yes, that's, right. that's what we're there for. So, we're there for the that, athlete. That, you, you know, you can be on a touchline, you can be on a bench. You know, I've, I've personally done all that stuff, but you're actually there for the athlete. That's what you're paid for. And you're there to enhance the athlete in so many ways, physically, mentally, um, support, depending on whatever level you are. It's no different. Um, and therefore this whole component about availability and, and injury prevention is absolute key. Um, What's up strength coaches taking a quick break away from the show to let you know about our membership site. Not only do we at strength coach network put out the cheeky midweeky, but we have a membership site where you gain access to a video library and a members only form. Inside the video library, you will have access to over 170 different lectures, which equals over 400 hours of content. Inside of these content, it is every sport you could think of and every topic in strength and conditioning. In our members-only forum, we have career advice and we have topics in strength and conditioning where coaches ask each other questions and we help each other inside the network. You can try the network out for 24 hours for $1 if you are not a member. Click the link down below and you will be able to check us out. Um... I think the key is that you're there for the athlete and that availability is really important. So as part of your program, prevention needs to be part of your program. And it's not just about making the athlete robust because obviously that is hugely important. And I completely agree with any strength coach that talks about robustness because it is about robustness and however you do that. And we can go on to the fine details about opinions about robustness, but each of those individual athletes need something different. And I think you should look at what they do from a player position perspective and relay that into whatever you're doing in your programs. I think what I've seen a lot of, even across like the professional world from NBA, NFL, MLB, there's a lot of blanket programs. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. We're in the phase of power. We're in the phase of hypertrophy. We're in the phase of strength. We're in, you know, lower body, upper body, whatever you're putting into play. But there's more to it than that. And I think that the the specifics of the player position and the past medical history has to play a point in what you're doing on the development of the athlete. Amen to that 100%. Because what you just said about like, oh, power phase, hypertrophy phase, you can't ever neglect a certain aspect, especially within team sports. Yeah. And, and I, I, you know, I understand that you're limited in the time that you have to spend with athletes. But <clears throat> I really believe that there should be some element of injury prevention into your program for that individual athlete. How do you go about that? And you, for you with the word injury prevention, what it, what do you mean by preventing it? Because I know like that's something that we talk about here a decent amount. Yeah, so, you know, listen, it depends on your skill level, right? And it depends on how you're looking at this. Okay. On a real basic level, if I was going to start from scratch with a blank piece of paper, I'd look at all the injuries that the individuals had. So let's say, for instance, you've had someone who's had an ankle problem. Let's say, for instance, you've got another athlete who's had a hamstring tear or quad tear. Let's say, for instance, you've got another athlete who's had an ACL. Right? They're all different. Yep. So in my program for the ankle, 
would be some single leg work, which would improve proprioception. And that might be RDLs. So there'll be more emphasis to that athlete on single leg proprioceptive work. Let's talk about the hamstring person. So that might be eccentric Nordics. It might also be, can they control their pelvis uh, and stabilize the pelvis and flex and move their hip? Um, can they do single leg uh, bridge work, controlling their pelvis? And when you're looking at that, it might be more around, not just purely emphasizing the hamstring, but looking at, for instance, the hip and the pelvis and looking at say obliques and can they control the pelvis when you do a single leg bridge can they do fallout can they basically go up into a bridge and abduct their hip and bring it back in again controlling their pelvis because the joints above and the joints below need to stabilize to allow something to mobilize that's how the body works mm -hmm. so on a real basic level it's things like that that you should emphasize the acl would incorporate probably to both of those would incorporate hamstring work because we know that hamstring work helps with regard ACLs. It might incorporate balance and control, deceleration work. So it might include some plyo type work for that particular athlete, whether that's in the phase of the training that you're doing or whether that's actually in the part of the prep or the warm up. So there's three examples on a real basic level where each of those three athletes programs should be slightly different to what your main phase of what you're trying to achieve does and you can include that so if you're in power phase you can include that in the hamstring in the balance in the rdls in the jumps in the decelerations for those individual athletes and that's the bit i don't see happening right and that's the bit where i'm like why on earth aren't these silos on the same page for the individual athlete, because all of those things that I talked to you about can massively improve the performance of the individual. If you've had an injury, that is gonna delay or cause a mechanical change or cause an insufficiency in movement for whatever sport they do. And basically we're born to move. <clears throat> I couldn't agree with you more. And I don't know, I guess I, <clears throat> I guess I selfishly assume that everybody is collaborating because that's what I did. And that's what other, the coaches that I, or the athletic trainer that I worked with, because that is at the end of the day, what it's about everything that you just said. And I remember a conversation I had with, a, he's not even a colleague. He's just a friend that we never worked together. He's now in the NFL. And he was talking about how kind of like what you were saying, he's like, you know, these coaches talk about how, they brag that they're a football only, so they have the only sport to work with, but yet they don't spend the time to actually truly individualize, and you don't have to overly tweak every little single thing. Like, you could keep the same main movement, and maybe the sets and reps are different, but you can find a way to work and help the individual within a team setting, and that stuck with me. And hearing you say that just further cements the fact that we can do that, and that's what we need to be educating strength coaches to be doing right now. Yeah, I, I agree. And listen, I get it, right? You have 60 or 70 guys coming into a weight room and you've got two hours and that's it. So it's it's really difficult to manage that amount of people coming staff. through. It's not like, let's yeah. not give them a cop out. Right? <laughs> well, well, I mean, look, I think this is about like creation of your programs and being specific within those programs. Yes. And I think if you plan, it's it's just, 
it's quite simple to do. And I'm not talking about you have to completely revamp what your program is. I'm talking about like in between. It might be if you're working in a if you're working in a rack between four four guys and they're coming through the rack, right? It might be, you know, when you rest, you stand and do this BOSU work or you stand and do, you know, single leg RDLs or you just stand on one leg and close your eyes and move your legs. Whatever it would be, there's some input that can happen in the weight room that can complement what happens in the training room. Because believe me, right, we're having this conversation about strength coaches. It's exactly the same in the in the training room. Right. You, they think that this is happening in the training room and and the same scenario, you've got an athletic trainer that might be seeing 25, 30 athletes a day, not necessarily monitoring what is actually going on on those individual programs. The same as what we're talking about with the strength coach. So the complement of both silos, both departments working in fluency, can, in my opinion, can help that athlete and help that athlete stay on the court, the field in the pool, whatever they're doing. This just this thought literally just came to me hearing you say that. What if there was no different rooms? What if the weight room and the athletic training room were the I mean, these massive palaces that are being built, what if they were just in the same and everybody had the same office? They had their own different office space within that big weight room, but there was actually no division of doors. Do you think that'll help? I do, but I think the first thing that I would be looking at, right, would be, like at the end of the day, it's all about wins and losses, right? That's what everyone loves. Everyone who, who works with athletes loves winning. Like when I was at Chelsea, I love winning titles. I love winning cups. I love being part of an organization that won. Everyone wants to win. Okay. That's one of the big reasons why we do what we do. Amen. The second reason that we do what we do is that we love seeing an athlete develop. If you were part of a journey of Joe Burrows, right, through LSU, and now see what Joe does in the NFL. If you were part of that team at LSU, you know, you would be very grateful to what you've put in to say, oh, I've been part of that, that guy's journey. Um, Quick break from the show to remind you to hit that like and subscribe button. So that way you get notifications of when more content like this gets released. So click that like and subscribe button. And with that, let's get back to the show. But I think what's really important is looking at can we reduce our availability stats season on season on season? Because that should be something that you should both departments should be looking at every single year. Can we reduce the amount of times that we have soft tissue injuries? Can we reduce pre-season that last year we had five hamstrings or three hamstrings? Can we reduce that to one? And how are we going to do it? How are we going to tackle that? Are we going to put a protocol that both sides, athletic trainers and strength and conditionings, are together to deliver it? And can we look back at it? And then can we then turn around and say to the coach, coach, we put this program in, in place and these are our results. And if the results aren't what you think they are, the easy way to look at that is go, well, we were just unlucky. And I just think that's bullshit, right? It's, what do you mean you're unlucky, right? It's, I mean, that's the biggest thing I've, I've heard in sport all the time. Well, we're just unlucky bullshit you're unlucky your program isn't working so therefore go back to the drawing board and look at how you can tweak change that product that program and then come back to the following season and then look at that data over a longitudinal period three four five years and there's been a lot of strength coaches on this podcast that will probably think well that's not my department well i disagree with you of course it's your department 
of course, the number one thing is, is the athlete available to do what they're supposed to do? Because mm-hmm. it doesn't matter how much they can bench and how much they can squat and how much high they can jump. It's irrelevant if they can't play. It's absolutely irrelevant. And then the second part of my process over sort of 30 years is, okay, so they can bench this, squat that, and jump that. So what? (laughs) Right? So what? Great. They do not perform in a gym. They perform on a court. They perform on on the grass, on the turf. How is their performance related to what they're doing in the weight room? And can you statistically look at their performance in the weight room, weight room and, and look at their statistical performance on the field or the court and relate the two side by side? And I don't see that happening. And you can do it now. There's data everywhere. So what should be relevant for each of those individuals is, is that individual performing from a coaching perspective? And if they're not performing, what can we do in the weight room and in the training room to enhance the performance of when they play on a Saturday or during the week or every other day or whatever sport they're doing? And that for me is how you, my thought process has changed over the years because we've been taught, you know, this is how you train someone. This is how you work out. This is how you treat someone. Well, really the, the end goal is what we're talking about here. And therefore, you should be looking at the end goal and looking at how you can implement things from the end goal into your individual programs. And that individual word, for me, is absolute key because that is really what it's about. Each individual athlete needs something slightly different to the next, even if they play the same position. And the relation of what they do on the court or on the field should have an impact in what you do in the weight room. For instance, if a lineman struggles to defend to the left, then your program should incorporate, you know, some lateral movement or glute band or whatever it would be to improve his explosive power to the left. But not every athlete on a lineman has an issue moving to the left. And that's when the specifics of that program relating to that individual athlete and working with coaching staff, athletic training staff can enhance performance as well as availability. Uh, Yeah. The reason I had a big pause was because I was listening and I was very much agreeing with you. You talked about the first thing that you would do is look at the athlete and their prior injuries. What else would you then do if you just get hired? Let's say you get hired right now. I'm wearing a, Iowa State shirt. Let's say you get hired at Iowa State and you're working there. What would be some of the first battery of physical assessments that you would do in addition to then looking at past medical history? So depending on your level of knowledge, I would basically come in and I would talk to the athletic training staff and I would see what they look at with them with regard to movement, movement screen. Me personally, I do uh, a sort of devised a, a, a block, what I call a blind screen. So sort of going off tangent here about the blind screen is that the idea is that you assess someone without knowing anything about them. The problem is, is if you know things about their past medical history, 
you tend to home in. If you had an ACL, you'll tend to home in at the knee. If you've had a hip issue, you tend to home in at the hip. If you don't know anything about someone and you're watching them move, jump, um, control, you're completely blind to all of the noise about from the subjective perspective, which is how the trainers would look at something. So doing things blind, in my view, is actually very, very beneficial. The depending on how you look at movement, I think movement is really, really important. And my philosophy about injuries and performance is that the body will always move. And what happens is over time is that if someone's had an injury and most of the people that we're dealing with have had an injury, right? If you're at college or high school level or professional level, certainly they've had an injury, but the body will always move. And that injury that they've had, whenever it was, it could be six months ago, could be six years ago. There will be an adaptation around the body and the movement from that injury. Because no one gets fully rehabilitated. The, the goal is to basically get back and play. And that's, that's what happens within an athletic training room. Are they safe? Get them back, get them playing, get them performing. But that rehabilitation doesn't continue. But the healing and the collagen and the changes within the adaptation of the, of the injury will continue to adapt for 6 to 12 to 16 months. And that, that adaptation can lead to what, we call, what I call movement dysfunction. And it's that movement dysfunction that, in my view, can lead to other problems. I'll give you a scenario. We've all had like athletes who've had an injury uh, or surgery and then come back and then they've had another injury and another injury and then we just turn around and go well they've just been unlucky and it, we can all think about those athletes and who they are well my view on that is that they've adapted to some movement function and that movement function has led to something else happening further on down the chain so looking at the way the the, the, the body is able to control and move because in order to perform a jump or, or first step or accelerate or decelerate, the body needs to stabilize at some joints as well as mobilize at other joints. It has to. And therefore, if you think about the body moving in that way, what you want to be able to do is find out where can they stabilize and how can they stabilize and how well can they stabilize. So I look a lot around the pelvis and the lumbar spine and see whether or not the body can actually stabilize to allow another joint to mobilize. I'll give you an example. I believe a lot of dysfunction occurs around the lumbar spine. So there's a small muscle called multifidus, which is like a scaffolding muscle around the lumbar spine, each segment of the lumbar spine. And what can happen is, is that that muscle becomes slightly dysfunctional and your spine will start to shift. And if your spine starts to shift because you're not controlling the column, your pelvis will rotate or your pelvis will drop. And then you'll end up then with, say, weakness in glute med, or you'll get an overcompensation in tensor fascial or TFL, and you get tightness in your ITB band. So what a trainer might do is go, oh, you're tight in your iliotibial band. We're going to do some foam roll. But that's not the problem. The problem is occurring further up in the spine. So therefore, what you should be doing is not necessarily foam rolling the ITB. 
but actually looking at the control of the lumbar spine because no matter how fast that hip moves, if the lumbar spine can't control the, the column and control the pelvis, then the hip is going to basically be out of sync. And that's just a really simplistic way of sort of looking at this. And most strength coaches would go, well, I don't really understand or, or know that because that's not really my, my remit. But the athletic trainers, that is their remit. So if you two work together and you understand that there's a weakness, if I told you as a strength coach and I'm your trainer and I said, listen, this athlete has got some instability around his L4, L5, uh, mortifidus on the left. This is how you train that muscle. Just do loads of single leg work to activate that mortifidus. Then you could put that in your program and then you're complementing what I'm doing in the training. And I, I, I don't want to get... I, I don't want to get too much sort of into the weeds here because obviously there's different levels of knowledge, right, about the body uh, and about how the body actually moves and works. But my my take home here is to actually look at how the body moves and controls. And I think control and stability of one joint to allow another joint to move is absolute key in part of a program design for an individual athlete. <clears throat> well, I mean, we can go into the weeds. That's the whole point of this. And that's what, you know, where, where strength coaches come to learn. And this is what they want to learn about, like, because they want to enhance performance. Like they, they need their athletes to move and to perform better. So like, you feel free, dive down that rabbit hole. Well, if you think about it, right, a lot, most movement comes from around the pelvis, from the hips, right? Yeah. And you can go from the bottom down or the top down, however you want to look at this. But at the end of the day, you need to be able to accelerate, decelerate, jump, turn, twist. And your ankle joint and your knee joint, relatively speaking, although there is a slight amount of rotation, is a hinge joint. But your rotational joint is your hip. So your hip and your hip control is absolutely vital to do a multi-directional movement or sport. Absolutely vital. So... When we train athletes, we need to think about not just training them in a sagittal plane, for instance. We need to think about training them in a transverse plane. And we need to think about rotation. Because rotation is where you're going to get actually more torque within the muscles firing and being used to control. It's harder to control a rotation than it is to control a flexion or extension. And if you look at your programs, right, squat, jump, bench, most of them are in a straight plane. They're not in a rotational plane. So if you're doing things like working the anterior sling, right, so you're working upper body and you're basically using kettlebells to rotate your shoulder, well, that's a rotational stability exercise. And it's more of those type of planes of movement that I think should be incorporated into a program and not just generic, but then specific to what an athlete actually needs. I'll give you another example. So I did the rehabilitation for Kevin Durant for his ruptured Achilles, right? So you've got a guy who's top of the game, plays basketball at the top level, ruptured his Achilles. He's 30 plus years old and he's just had his tendon repaired. And obviously, we need to get his soleus and his gastroc really strong. We need to get the recoil 
moving of the tendon and gradually you progress the strength within that muscle and that tendon. But what you've also got to think about is that when he cuts or he, he basically shoots, his leg or his limb will rotate. So if he steps back, he'll, he'll do it at a pivot, he'll do it at an angle. It's not a straight line. So therefore, when you're rehabilitating, for instance, the Achilles, whether it's soleus or gastroc or even the whole of the lower chain, you've got to think about doing it at different angles. And that's then going into more specifics about what KD would do when he plays the game. So that has to go really early into his rehabilitation to be specific to what this actual function does. But secondly, if you look at the anatomy of the Achilles, for instance, it twists as it goes into the oscalsis. So it's, there's no point in doing calf raises in a straight line. Okay, you should be doing calf raises at different angles, right? So there's just one example of a tendon going into a bone, but thinking about how the tendon actually functions. It doesn't function in a, you know, backwards and forwards, just goes do calf raises. It, it, it just doesn't work like that. So if all you do is just calf raises in a straight line, you're not affecting all of the parts of the tendon and the muscle. And it's little things like that, that, if you think about the way that the body moves and look at what they actually do on the court, or what they do on the field and relate that to your program, I think you're being more specific with your program design. I a hundred percent agree. Why aren't more people doing that? Well, the thing is, it, it, I think there's a couple of uh, reasons. I think people probably don't understand the anatomy as well as they could. Um, I think that they go with what they know, which is absolutely fine. I think they want to be safe, which is absolutely fine. But, you know, if you're a young strength coach who wants to expand your knowledge and expand to be different, because there's only so much you can do in the hour that you've got with these 70 athletes, right? There's only so much you can do. And you might have them two or three times a week. And obviously, I understand you have more time in the off-season programs. But what's really important is, like I keep coming back to it, is availability and the specifics of what they do in the game. Because that's, that's really what will make an athlete, right? And you can make them faster. But, for instance, it's great making someone faster. But can they actually go out? If you're wide receiving, you make, you know, you've knocked off. Let's say you've knocked off. You've improved their speed by two miles an hour. And the GPS data is telling you this guy's gone from 18 miles an hour to 21 miles an hour. Fantastic. You're doing a great job. But can they run around and catch a ball and decelerate and cut? And if the answer is, well, they're not as good at that, then it doesn't matter how fast you make them. What's relevant is either hand-eye coordination or deceleration or the ability of the hip to control the, the, the cut to explode off from one side to the other. And that's then being more specific than just saying, we've made this guy bigger, stronger, faster. No, it, <clears throat> amen to that. How, how have you best done that in what in within the availability and things that you're allowed to say? Like, what are some practical tips to help coaches do those things in the weight room and on the field or on the court? So most, you know, <clears throat> The, the, the wonderful thing about coaches is they understand the game, right? So the way I look at this is like, what does this athlete need when I watch the game? 
because they're all on the on the sidelines, they're all on the benches watching the game, and then talk to the coaching staff about what they actually need. And then find out from the coaching staff, you know, he's struggling to do this and that. And then implement that into your program. How and that, for me... always physical, not something just like psychological? Well, listen, I think psychological is a massive part of what goes on with any athlete at any level, hugely. And I think strength coaches do a great jobs of mentoring, uh, supporting um, that side of the, the sort of mental aspect and making people, you know, get more grit and be tougher. Because at the end of the day, that's something that comes out from training and being in a weight room and pushing your body like that helps 100% that helps on what they do on the field. You know, if you can bench and squat and do X and Y, you're going to feel like Superman walking on the field, 100%. But what also helps is something specific to what the coaches staff are seeing that you could perhaps implement. It might be hand-eye coordination. It might be the ability to react quicker. It might be the ability to decelerate quicker. And therefore, like I said, each of these individuals need different things. Different positions need different things. And I think if there's one message I probably could put across to your listeners here is to actually look at each of the different positions that these players play and implement a specific program for those positions. If you haven't got time to do it on a one-to-one basis, look at the positional players and look at the program that you're putting together for the positional players and be specific around what the coaching staff saying that these players need and that's where i would start and then the second part is the movement is to look at movement screening and and look at implementing things that you find on a movement screen for an individual as well as the past medical history of that individual into their daily warm-up prehab workouts whatever and that's how i'd go about this for somebody that has worked with a high-level athlete with an Achilles injury, you know, the Aaron, Aaron Rodgers obviously hurt his. Mm. How important, let's start with surface. Training surface is a hot topic in the NFL. In your personal opinion, does it matter? So, I don't think there's enough evidence on it, but I do think that there's a difference between those two surfaces. And I think if you're playing on those both surfaces, going back to the specifics, right, then what you should do is you should train on both those surfaces. Right? Is you should practice how you play. And, for instance, some teams would practice on a, what we call in the UK, AstroTurf, right, or field turf. And some teams would practice on normal, normal turf. But if one week you're playing normal turf and the next week you're playing on field turf, you have to be able to adapt and train on both. And therefore, anything that you do, whether it's a cut, a deceleration, your body has to adapt and get used to that surface that you're going to play on. And perhaps teams do not do that. They just use what they've got to practice what they're doing. So if, if, if I was in charge and we were playing on a field turf, then that whole week for me, we would be practicing on field turf. We wouldn't be practicing on turf. And then the following week, if we're we're playing on turf, we would be practicing on turf. 
Yeah, though, that makes so, more sense than just changing you know, the entire series yeah, of games. Yeah. Right. I mean, listen, you know, the debate of ACLs and injuries from different types of surfaces, there's not enough research out there to specifically say, yeah, it causes problems. But if you talk to the athletes, you know, they believe, and they're pretty good judges, they're good judges of their bodies, their belief is that, you know, there is a fundamental difference between playing on one type of surface than another. And some athletes who've got injured on that particular type of surface will say it's that surface that's caused this problem. So I think I think as leagues and organisations, you know, they need to sort of do more research on that. Um, but my view would be if, if you're not going to change it, i.e. the league's not going to change the type of surface you're playing on, You've got to prepare and adapt to what you're actually doing. <clears throat> what about this whole notion where Aaron is talking about wanting to come back sooner? And <clears throat> I'm looking at it through the lens of I had an athlete rupture their Achilles in October after a bye week and trained with that person. And at the end of the spring ball, I mean, they were doing fantastic things. So credit to the athlete, credit to the athletic trainer and myself for how we collaborated and worked. So I've seen things and I've heard about the Cam Akers things. Again, from your experience looking at this thing outside looking in, what are your thoughts? So you can't... Human nature and healing, right, is there for a reason. And the way that the body heals in, say, for instance, an Achilles perspective is that it, it needs to lay down collagen it needs to lay down scar tissue that will adapt to mature and then whatever we do as coaches will adapt and mold that scarring right that's how tissue repairs but there's a time scale and no matter what you do that time scale is there for a reason like that collagen matures from whether it's type one type two collagen lay down it then goes into maturity and it continues to mature months past the athlete actually getting back on the field. But no matter what we do, whether it's surgical, machine intervention, manual therapy, strength and conditioning, you know, whatever it is, we can only speed that up so much. Yes. And the, the notion of time is a great healer is absolutely right. Okay. What we do know about Achilles is that the longer you leave it, the better it's going to be. And the same, for instance, with ACLs, right? So if you look at people who come back at six months or four months from an ACL, the reoccurrence of injury rate goes up. The people who come back at nine months, the reoccurrence rate goes down. So, you know, you're always up against this pressure. Let's get the athlete back. Let's get the athlete performing because they're paid the big money in this in this scenario but in my view about Aaron Rodgers he still needs time and then on top of that you've got age mm. because what we do know is that as the athlete gets older there's more degeneration within their tendons and their muscles right the elasticity changes the collagen changes over years that we get older okay so you've got that into the equation you've also got however many years, for instance, he's been playing, right, wear and tear on his body. And that plays a, a part in his rehabilitation. So, again, in someone like that, the, 
my view would be that you know you i'm sure that the the jets and the team around him are doing this but it needs to be a very holistic view about how you rehabilitate that achilles you you shouldn't just be thinking about the achilles you should be thinking about everything else and in someone like that for instance it, it my view would be you would be looking at the other tendons so his patella tendons his other achilles tendon because those will be degenerative for sure and therefore implementing programs to strengthen that while he's not performing because while he's not performing he's detraining so if you're looking at a return of an athlete that making sure that they are able to get back and perform at the highest level of course you're looking at the injury but you need to be thinking about everything else around that athlete everything and looking at all the past medical history and looking at all the issues that they've had from a movement perspective and working on those as well as working on the Achilles. But my view would be, you know, if you're asking me on a time scale, a minimum, a minimum would be six months, minimum. And if you try and push that to get back any earlier, then you're really on a tightrope for failure. It's just whether or not you, you or him, the athlete, is prepared to take that failure. <coughs> And that's something that we've said at Strength Coach Network before is you can't try twice as hard and have a baby in four and a half months. Like you can't speed up the actual process of, like you just said, laying down the collagen fibers and having the physiological, morphological changes that need to happen in the body for that to occur. Yeah. Um, I mean, listen, it's the same as strength gains. You know, you, you need six weeks to see strength gains. And if you're making out that you've got strength gains within two weeks, it's nothing to do with, yeah, yeah. yeah, of course. Well, that's just physiology. So yeah, of course you can get overcompensation and you can get neurological input and, and you can get up, upside, but that's not the long-term goal. And therefore you've got to understand your anatomy and understand your physiology and implement that into your sort of program design. But I agree with you. You can't, you know, you, you can only be a magician for so long. <laughs> and at the end of the day with all this, right, is it all boils down to the athlete. So you can, you know, take the horse to water, but you can't make the horse drink the water. It's, it's really true. So no matter how much you also try, the athlete has got to take responsibility and ownership on what you're implementing, what they're doing. And all you do is guide them. But I just feel that more communication, better communication, more specifics on player position, movement screen. They would be my real take-homes from sort of this conversation today. You talked about the blind screening. How can people Mm. do that if they're working with athletes that they see all the time? So, listen, if you've got, a limited amount of time and you've got a big group in then you know that's all about planning and if you've got three strength coaches in the room then the view is divide up <coughs> excuse me divide up um who's doing what and implement your programs with regard movement and, and screening and i would be doing that in the off season i would be basically making up a profile on each athlete that you've got and it can be really simple stuff right that you just think okay like i said before 
What's up, strength coaches? Want to take a quick break from the show to talk to you about our sponsor, Team Builder. Team Builder is your one-stop shop for online training platform needs as a coach. With Team Builder, you're going to be able to program for your athletes, whether they're in person or remote. Using Team Builder, not only will you be able to program for your athletes, but there are special features such as the leaderboard and locking training with wellness questionnaires. With the leaderboard, you can have an exercise performed that day, whether it be a lift, a sprint, or a jump, and scores can be updated in real time and projected on a TV in the training. Wellness questionnaires can be used at the beginning of training, and your athletes will have to fill them out prior to being able to train. This ensures that as a coach, you're being able to collect quality data before the athletes train. So, if you're interested in Team Builder, click the link down below and find out more information let's get back to the show most people have had an ankle hamstring or acl problem so your acl guys are going to do this your ankle girls are going to do this and you know and therefore you're 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 not being specific for the individual athlete but you're being specific around previous problems that they've had and just by implementing those into someone's program you're now being more specific than what you would be if you generalized doing you know today we're we're doing a four-week phase of you know power and that would be sort of the thing that i would put in you know very early and, and follow through and then go back with your athletic training department and look at your availability stats and see if they actually are improving season on season and also look at your game stats so it's not just purely about gps data no it's not right so I'll give you an example. Um, it's quite interesting. I was the first guy to bring catapult into the NBA. Uh, when I went to the Knicks from Chelsea, we used GPS from 2002, 2003. And I came to America and no one had ever heard of it. And I went to the league. I remember this. I went to the league and I talked to them about like monitoring what actually happens in a game and looking at it from an injury preventive point of view. And they looked at me as if I was like a cuckoo. And the answer back from the lawyers was, I'd started talking to them about load. And the this is a true story. The answer back to me was, well, why don't you weigh them before and after the game? <laughs> and I looked at the guy and I was like, I don't really think you understand what I'm talking about here. And, <laughs> and then like, let's fast forward now to where we are today, right? But while I was looking at data, uh, in the early stages of basketball and obviously trying to understand the sport because I'd come from soccer, I started looking at a ton of data, right? And the question then was, well, which data is relevant? And I think what's happening now is people have sort of got on this bandwagon of looking at, let's say, GPS data and they've forgotten about what the actual original goal is, is to actually prevent someone from being injured. So you can talk about any type of methodology and it is methodology and it's not proven methodology, by the way, let's say acute chronic work ratio or Tim Gabbett's work or any other type of work that you want to do, but you should be relating to is your injury availability improving or not season on season. And if it's not, then it's not just purely dependent on acute chronic work ratios, right? So, this is like what the way I look at it is like a big cake. And that is a very small slice of a cake. But the other slices of the cake are the things that we're talking about today, which I think are actually more important than that. And I think what's happening now is that there's been this, there's been, there's been this turn of let's not 
necessarily be looking purely at those numbers and let's actually start looking at other things. And the reason I know this is because I, I now run a software company called Apollo and that's what we do. We basically bring all of this information in for teams and organizations to help us or help them adapt and understand. So for instance, we just signed Alabama football where we're going to bring that information together to let them get a better understanding quickly about all the things that they're doing from the weight room to the performance side of the game. And I think that's really important. But again, you can be specific with it. And that's the, the sort of take home that I'm trying to sort of drive it through in this conversation today, just is that I don't see enough of that. How are you guys measuring availability? Is it man game lost due to injury and across the whole team, most important mm. players? How do you guys do it? How do you, how do you so, recommend yeah. it? So, so the way I would do it is the most important thing is the game. Amen. If, if the player is available to play the game, right? Practice, like people need practice for sure. And they need to practice to be able to perform. If they don't practice, they're not necessarily going to be able to go out and perform at a weekend, right? So practice is, is important, but the number one is the availability of the game. The second is, what is it that you can prevent? So a concussion or a direct blow to a knee, there's not much that you, you can do about that. If you've got a 300-pound lineman tackling you and taking you down, there's not much you can do about that. Yeah, like AC right? Springs too, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So you can... You can, uh, you can make them as big and strong as you want, but you know, that force is huge force. So what I would be looking at is I'd be looking at like the soft tissue um, side of it. I'd be looking at hamstrings. I'd be looking at um, groins, calves, tendon issues. That's the, that's the area that I'd be looking at and looking at how can we reduce those numbers? Because they're the things in the weight room, for instance, that you can have an effect on. You can have an effect on muscle, you can have an effect on nerve, and you can have an effect on tendon. <clears throat> would you say, like hearing you talk about that, would you say that possibly <clears throat> injury prevention is just then injury reduction across time, season to season? Because that seems to be the theme that you, you, you keep bringing up and something that I 100% agree with. I mean... That, Listen, that's the bottom line. Are they are they available to play at the weekend? That's all the coach is worried about. That really are you are you available to play? And then the second then is, how well do they play? But we don't control that. No, but you, what what I'm trying to sort of get in the conversation is, you can have an effect on it, and True. you actually can have more of an effect on it than what you actually believe. And the way I've that you that, can have yeah, an effect, I've done that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, look, the way that you can have effect on it is to talk to your offensive, defensive coaches, talk to your basketball coaches. Like, what is it that, that this female basketball player needs in the point guard? What is she not doing? Where is she struggling? You know, where's the big struggling? Where's the offensive line struggling? Where is the quarterback struggling? Where, where, where are the things that you see? Because at the end of the day, right, even though it's subjective, they're paid and their experiences are there to enhance the performance of the team and the individual. And then if you listen to that and implement that into things that you're doing 
from the weight room and the training room and be specific with what they do and then look at that data right and that might be a simple thing like you know the num if you're a wide receiver like the number of uh, routes that the yardage that you've done the number of completions that you've done whatever stat it is that you look at the stats are there so if you've got an athlete that's not making that route or not catching that ball what is it that you can do to improve that and see the change on the on the actual game from what you're doing in the weight room and it might be a simple thing like hand eye reaction times you know tennis ball against the wall or whatever it is you own med ball against the trampette or whatever it is that you do my view is that's the most important part it's not the fact that the guy can bench 300 pounds that's the most important part right is that can can he catch that ball in that scenario and that's the thing that i think this whole sort of silos and this is the sort of thing that we're trying to do with teams is to try and bring all of those different silos and data sets together to give you a piece of paper to go these are the things from the game data these are the things from the gps data these are the things from the weight room data these are the things from the training room movement data here it is on one page and here are the highlights of the things that they need to improve on and then track it how is this athlete improving or they're not improving. And if they're not improving, then go back to the drawing board and go, okay, so now we need to sort of think about maybe this isn't working for us. Let's redo this for this particular individual athlete. And there's a constant change in evaluation, change in evaluation, whether it's season to season, off season to in season, etc. And that's dependent on how you look at your programs. Now, would you say that that's something that you could change not only you know you mentioned alabama football but let's say it is the new york knicks and or it's baseball could you change the in-game statistics to be if you're um you know an offensive player running back hey tackles missed and then conversely linebacker tackles made um tackles not missed like how granular can you get with the in-game stuff and compare it to the weight room stuff and then how does it all get overlaid for any of our coaches that are listening and like this sounds really cool so if you don't look at it, you don't know. And I bet a lot of people don't look at it. They don't look at what, like the in-game statistics? The, the actual in-game statistics, yeah. And How actually... Deep of the statistics well, are you talking? I mean, you can go as granular as you want to go because the information is there. Yeah. The interpretation of it is a different conversation. But the other thing is to talk to a coach, right? So if I'm, if I'm a lineman coach and you're the strength coach, and you talk to me about player A, player B, player C, player D, I would literally get off the bat and tell you, right, he needs this, he needs that, he needs that, he needs this. And then you implement what you do, and then come back to the coach in six weeks' time, or et cetera, and say, <clears throat> let's have that conversation again. Is this guy improving this or improving that? <clears throat> no, he's not doing that. Okay, go back to your drawing board, implement whatever you're doing but if he turns around and says to you well actually so and so i've noticed that he's actually improving his speed he's improving his speed laterally he's able to grip more and block more you know and he's basically he's definitely improving a job because this is now a combination between what the coach does on the field to coach 
and what you do in the right weight room to strengthen. But there, there is a, there's a yin and yang of this. There's a collaboration of this. Remember, right? We're all on the same page. And that's the other thing that I sometimes, it bewilders me, is like <clears throat> I've had situations where strength coaches don't want to share data with athletic trainers. Athletic trainers don't want to share data with strength coaches. I've got situations where, this is true, I've got situations with uh, professional teams where the front office, right, don't want to share the game stats with the clubhouse, the performance staff. They're like, oh, no, this is to do with us. This is, and I'm like, well, you're all on the same team. You're all trying to achieve the same thing. And it's a W and it's a ring. That's what everyone wants to do. Mm-hmm. So why are you staying in your silo and not giving me that information that I think actually might give me a 1% change in what I do and I can give you something on my end that might give you a 1% change on what you do, but that 1% could be the difference between winning and losing. That 1% could be the difference between a player being available for one game that could change the course of what happens for the team. And those margins are so small, right? They're so small that you've got to look at all those tiny margins collectively and you will find that you will actually improve performances of teams, performances of individuals. And that's the bit where uh, it, 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 it still bewilders me working for someone supporting some you know, teams and organizations that I still see all that going on. Is it something as uh, I agree with you. And like one of the things that I did was I got rid of the old record board when I got to Towson because I didn't want people trying to chase numbers in the weight room. I cared about, I, I told them, I said, the record that matters is wins and losses. And then the other number that I care about is, I mean, we did, we tracked player availability. That was number one. And then number two mm-hmm. was if you did get hurt, what was your average time to return? That was statistic number two that mattered. Yeah, I completely agree with you. But don't get me wrong. I think showing progression of any level. Yes. Still, still, right. still track all the stuff that they did. It's like, to me, it was their report card. Yeah. And listen, a lot of people now are using, uh, you know, data to test that, whether it's Perch or Vowed or Kangatech or, you know, 1080 Motion or uh, Gym Aware or whatever. They're, they're using these, te- these technology now to collect information to show improvement, which I think is great. But what's even greater is actually looking at your availability stats. And then what's even greater than that is looking at what a coach is telling you about an athlete and what the data tells you about an athlete in the sport that they choose to play. And how can you implement something in what you do on a daily basis with those athletes to affect those stats? Not the fact that they can accelerate a bar, you know, 10% or they can bench 20% more or squat another 50 pounds, right? It's all athlete development. But what's really important is how does that, what you do in the weight room, relate to what they do in their sport? And there's a massive crossover at the end of the day, right? Improving someone's robustness, improving someone's speed, improving someone's deceleration. All of these things can have an effect by you lifting more. Mental, we talked about, grit, 
affecting the the Superman scenario that they come out and they feel like they're you know invincible, but there's still that element that every athlete can improve what they do technically, tactically on a field that you perhaps could have an effect in the weight room. And that's the thing I think that's the message of sort of doing this for 30 years and working in multiple professional sports that I personally feel is missing. Do you think that their problem is too much technology in sport? Because that's something we talked a lot with our guests lately about is the overindulgence in all of those different technologies that you just talked about. So like what we try and do is we, we try and bring all of those together because people don't have time and time is a huge issue. So all this stuff that we're talking about today, right, is you, you've got to have some time to implement this. And probably the easy excuse is to say, well, I don't have enough time. And, you know, my view is, well, you can make time, especially when it's, when it's looking at program design and things that we're talking about in the off season here. But during the day-to-day workings, like, you know, I spent seven years on a bench in the NBA and traveling and doing back-to-backs and getting in at 3 a.m. Like, it's a tough schedule. Um, so time is a problem. What we try and do is we try and bring all that data together so that we give you one page to look at what you particularly want to look at. My issue is, is that that technology is all in different silos. So you use one hardware and you've got a software looking at the data. You use another hardware, you've got to use their software to look at the data. And really what you should do is you should be able to press the button and see on your phone a report that's specific to what questions you want to answer. And that's where I've sort of now left my practitioner life and moved into sort of this software. But I agree. I think that we're sort of overanalyzing the information that we're given but we quite don't quite know what to do with it and i think really where we we should be looking at is actually the the game the information from the coach even if it's subjective data how do we get that information from the coach to relay that into what we're doing from an objective perspective looking at testing or progression or regression of an athlete and I think that we're getting too much in the weeds with a lot of data because now there's a lot of data. Like, you know, how many data points do you look at on a GPS unit? How relevant is that on the GPS to performance and to our injury availability? And you'll have people that will come and go, well, you know, you'd have the purists that will go, well, we follow this regime and, you know, here's our injury stats and our injury stats have gone down. But, you know, if you're looking at that longitudinally, then my view is it's not all about just that one piece of information that you're looking at. Like I said, every athlete is a cake, right? And every athlete's makeup of the cake, different types of cake, different positions, different psychologies, different mentalities, different attitudes, different genetics. Every athlete is different. And therefore if you look at each of those cakes and the slices of those cakes and the makeup and the quantity of the slices of those cakes, that for me is how you get down to the granular level and what you should be doing to use this information and data to enhance what you do. And I don't see that. And that's the bit where our sort of customization and we use like products like Power BI and Tableau, which 
I'm sure a lot of your sort of sports science people will use, which yeah. are very beneficial. So we have that built within our ecosystem because then we can be very specific and customize each individual report. So each athlete will get their own cake. And that's the way that I personally think it should be done rather than sort of this generic, we're just going to, we're just looking at our GPS data or we're just looking at our perch data. It's like, yeah, great. I keep going back, you know, the questions I ask all the time and even running this software company. So what? So what? Great. You're doing this. So what? Well, we do this and we're you know, running at 22 miles. I, I had a, a wide receiver that I've looked after for years, right? For years in the NFL, very famous wide receiver. He said to me two weeks ago, he says, I've been running at 22 miles an hour, which is pretty fast. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. Yep. And he's a freak of an athlete. And I went, great. But my view is, so what? Great. You're getting up to 22. Absolutely fantastic. You can get away from someone great but are you actually getting away from someone and basically catching the ball are you improving your yardage are you doing the things that you used to do four or five years ago before you had an injury that for me is more relevant than running you know whether he's running at 21 or 20 or 19 so what can he leave his man how fast is his, is his acceleration and his deceleration Here's the, here's the data. Great. But so what? Can he actually make the play? Can he catch the ball? Can he make the yardage? And that's the data I'd be looking at first. And then I'd overlap that in my cake with he's running at this or he's accelerating at this, etc. And then I take those two pieces of information and then I put a program into place for his availability and likewise improving, let's say, his power in the weight room. And then I'll come back to that in three months later and then I'll go, all right, so now he's running at 22 miles an hour, but actually that 22 miles an hour is now improving his availability, his uh, ability to make more yardage and catch more balls. And then you're now looking at several slices of the cake and you can now put that into a one pager to look at all that information. Does that make sense? I'm trying yeah, to keep that really, I mean, it's a lot more complicated than that, yeah. but I'm trying to sort of give the idea mm -hmm. about these cakes and these segments of the cakes. And it's just not, it's not black and white. And it's, there's many different segments of a cake that makes up each individual athlete. And some have more slices or different types of cakes um, is probably the best uh, way to describe it or think about it. That makes perfect sense to me. Um, I could talk with you about this stuff all day. We've gone for over an hour, and I know you're, you know, you're traveling out there. So, to anybody that's stuck with us this long um, and they're interested in the Apollo, what, you know, where can they learn more about it, and, and you know, where can they be directed to? Yeah, so I, I'm not really big on social media. Um, I'm more on LinkedIn, um, so they could look me up on LinkedIn. Um, or they can contact or get in contact with me through info at apollov2.com, which is our website, apollov2.com. Um, they can contact and get hold of me through there. And if you know people are interested in sort of the things that we're doing as a company, but my philosophy and what we're talking about today is, is sort of the imprint that I'm trying to put into our sort of software business. Um, and the bottom line is how can we help organizations and teams? 
Because at the end of the day, again, each team and organization do things differently. And time, for me, is one of the biggest things I think that we can help with regard uh, coaches. I'll give you an example. So collecting information from coaches is really difficult, right? And people don't like doing it. And let's be really honest, right? I mean, coaches just hate, then then they're, they're coaches, right? They, they, they ain't going to go in and get on their computer and type up what they did today. Forget it. It's not going to happen. So in our app, we designed voice to text. So if I'm coaching you today, I can press a button and talk in my phone and all your notes go into your report on your slices of your cake in your report. Nice. So now I'm collecting information on you. Because if I said to you, all right, um, what did you think of athlete A six weeks ago? You wouldn't have a, you wouldn't have a fucking clue. Sorry, I don't swear. You wouldn't have a clue. You wouldn't have a clue, right? What? You would not have a clue what happened six weeks ago. Forget about it, right? We wouldn't. And the same for the trainer. And the same for the coach on the field. Yes, yes. Right? Opinions will change. But if you have a way to collect just that piece of data from, say, the pitching coach in the pen, right? And literally relay that to the strength and conditioning coach. And then the, you're overlapping what the strength and conditioning coach is saying. By pressing a button and talking in your phone, now you're sharing information. That's dope. <clears throat> We're going to have uh, the links below for, you know, you guys, uh, if you're curious to go to their, their information. So you'll be able to check it out down below. But Dave, I appreciate being able to learn from you, man. This has been, uh, this has been an absolute pleasure. So thank you again for coming on. Justin, I really appreciate uh, chewing the fat with you, sir. And uh, I wish you all the very best. And thanks for having me on board.